I'm going to ask you to bow with me, and we're going to pray and ask God's blessing on what we are about to do. Let's just go before the Lord. Father, I just thank you so much that you are the God of encouragement. I thank you that you lift us up, you strengthen us, you empower us, you enable us, you lift our spirits, and I pray, Father, that that would be our experience this morning. Lord, in a room this size with so many people, there is undoubtedly people who are feeling overwhelmed with the circumstances of life, discouraged and despondent, perhaps even despairing. And I pray, Father, that you would just fill them with a sense of hope and confidence and encouragement today. Fill us all with that sense of encouragement, I pray, and that we would leave here with, a, with an enthusiasm for you, an enthusiasm for your kingdom is our, is our ask, Lord. Lord, we know that you change us through the word, through the preaching of the word, and so I pray now that you would come amongst us and take the, the futility and the weakness of this man and empower your word and let it live in our hearts so that we would go out of this place changed for the honor and the glory of Jesus, we ask in his name. Amen. It's a real pleasure to be back here with you. And if you have your Bibles, I hope you do, take them and turn to Haggai chapter 2. And uh, we're going to continue our study, our journey uh, through this little book, this uh, magnificent little book. God spoke to Haggai the prophet on three separate occasions over the course of about three months. Last week we talked about that first instance. It was the first day of the sixth month of the second year of Darius, the Persian Empire. So we know historically that that was 520 BC. And God's message to the people is summed up in verse 4. And and God asked this question, is it time for you yourselves people of Israel, to dwell in your paneled palatial homes while my house, this house, lies in ruins. That was the question that God asked his people. Seventeen years before this, the children of Israel had been allowed to leave Babylon after their exile came to a conclusion. Cyrus the Great released them to go back, a group of them to go back under the leadership of Zerubbabel, and his job was to build the temple. And although they had laid the foundation, although they had built an altar, and although they had consecrated priests and they had Levites working there, the temple had not been built. Seventeen years it had not been built. As I said last week, because the temple lay in ruins, so did the reputation of the God of Israel. His glory was besmirched. He was not receiving the adulation and the praise that he should have received. The temple's condition reflected how, it appeared, Israel viewed God, but particularly also the surrounding nations. If God wasn't strong enough to protect his temple, if the gods of Babylon were stronger than the gods of Israel, why worship the God of Israel? You can't be that great a God after all. And so in verse 8, for his glory and for his pleasure, the Lord calls the people of Israel to go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified. And so the word of God had done its work. Revival kind of happened in the lives of these people. They heard the word of God, they revered it, it impacted them, and it transformed them. One of the fundamental things that happened was that their values were changed. They had been self-centered, they had been selfish, 
And now they were changed. They were transformed so that their lives were now reoriented with God's priority. They became passionate about God's glory. They began to really long to see this temple built. It was in their heart all the time, but the passion wasn't there. The enthusiasm for God's glory had waned. And then by grace, God led them to repentance by his presence in that place. And so now, 24 days later, the end of chapter 1, the wood is cut. The stones from the old temple have been arranged and, and sort of collected into some semblance of order, the big ones and the smaller ones and the smallest ones. And they've got a plan, and they're ready to build. And on the 24th day of the month, the first, sixth month, they began to build. And the Bible tells us at the end of chapter 1 that the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Joshua, and the Lord stirred the spirit of the people, and they were animated, and they were excited, and they were enthused, and they were passionate, and they got to work because the spirit of the people was encouraged by the spirit of the Lord, and they threw themselves into the task. Now we come to chapter 2, and we kind of see a different message. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. So, less than a month later, the prophet, speaking for God, communicates a different message. And I don't know if you noticed that when when Mahir was reading that passage of scripture, how encouraging it was. God said things like this, be strong. Work or work hard. I'm with you. My spirit is in your midst. Don't be afraid. The nations, the treasures of all the nations will come and I will fill this house with glory. This is a message of encouragement. It is a message of motivation. It is a catalytic message. And you say to yourself, well, why is that necessary? Given the fact that about, you know, two months ago, God had revived the people. God had spoken to them. They had reoriented their priorities. They had gotten passionate about the glory of God. They intentionally repented of how they were living in their sinfulness, and they were fired up. They were excited. And here we are less than a month later, and God, through his prophet, is now needing to encourage and motivate and be catalytic. What's going on? Obviously, the spirit of the people was fading. Their passion was flagging. They were beginning to feel a sense of discouragement. That old apathy was creeping back in again. So why? Why in such a short time, after such a magnificent transformation as a result of the word of God active in the lives of the people, why is it that after they begin, less than a month, God has to come along and give them a pep talk? Why are they so discouraged? Why are they so unmotivated? What's the problem? I think in a big sense... The problem is this, that passion for revival and passion for God's glory can and does quickly fade when we encounter obstacles and challenges and difficulties. 
It's so, easily to become, it's so easy to become discouraged and disheartened and unmotivated when we encounter challenges in our ministries, doing the Lord's work. It's easy for zeal and passion for revival and the vision for God's glory through his church to fade when we encounter difficult times in our journey, setbacks and challenges especially in those moments when God's blessing doesn't seem to be obvious. So when I I retired from my church last year after a long, they were so glad to see me go, it was unbelievable. After 32 years, here's the door, what's your hurry? So I retired and a bunch of people came up to me and he said, so what are you going to do now? And I said, well, I don't have a ton of plans. And somebody said, well, a bunch of them said, why don't you write a book? And I thought two things. One, you guys think I'm way smarter than I actually really am. I've, I've done a good job fooling you for about 32 years. But secondly, I, I thought any book that I would want to write has already been written. Somebody more articulate, somebody smarter, somebody with more degrees, somebody with more experience has already written that book. So any contribution that I would make would kind of not be all that significant or important. But there has always been one book that I've sort of long to write. And this, this will be the, I haven't written it, but this will be the title if I ever do. And the title is this, How to Work for God When It Seems That God's Not Working. How to stay motivated in your work for God when it appears that God is not working. It's hard to maintain a passion for the Lord's work. It's hard to maintain a passion for your calling as a Christian. It's hard to get out of bed and say, Lord, I want to use my gifts today for your honor and your glory when it appears that what you are doing is not having an appreciable impact. And sometimes that's the way I feel. Sometimes that's the way I feel. So what discouraged them? What sapped their zeal and their passion for God? I think by answering that question, we can answer the question, what is it that demotivates us? What is it that robs us of our passion and our enthusiasm and our zeal to serve God when he has called us? So I want to talk this morning about the scourge of discouragement It's a real problem in the church. It's a problem in my life. I think it's a problem in a lot of our lives. And to be forewarned about the causes of discouragement can really help us overcome discouragement and help us keep on keeping on in the work of God, the work that he has called you to do. And so there's four things in this passage of Scripture that I think profoundly discouraged the people of God. They stumbled over these issues and they allowed themselves to become discouraged after such a short time, and I want to identify them. And the first one is this. They believed what they saw. They believed what they saw. Look at verse 2. God says to this prophet, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say this. And here, right now, God is going to introduce the elephant in the room. God is going to deal with the issue that everybody's thinking about, but nobody's talking about. And here it is. Verse 3. 
Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? If you, go, if you flip back, and you don't have time to flip back, I, I realized last Sunday after I preached for that enormous amount of time that your services end at 10.15 and not 10.30. I apologize. It's in sackcloth and ashes. Right? We'll get you out of here at 10.15. Um, don't go back to Ezra chapter 3, but if you read in Ezra chapter 3, you will see that when the people came back from Babylon... When Cyrus let them go, 17 years before this, they were excited and they were enthused and they were eager to to build a temple. And so they laid the foundation and they built an altar. But some of the older people who had seen Solomon's temple, who were young people in 586 when Nebuchadnezzar took them into Babylon, and are now old men and women, they have come back and they look at the foundation, and they realize to their horror that what they are going to build is going to pale in in, in significance compared to the glory and the magnificence and the majesty of the temple that Solomon had built 500 years before this. And the Bible says that they wept. They were brokenhearted. They compared what was then to what had been And they wept. So 17 years later, they get back to business. They get busy again building the temple. But the elephant in the room is this. And God addresses it. Look at this that you're going to build here, guys. Doesn't it just seem like nothing compared to what was? And I love it that God doesn't ignore that issue. He addresses it. He brings it to the fore. Because I know that I am so inclined this way. I, I, I have been in ministry for almost 40 years. And in that 40 years, the church in Canada has been in decline. And I say, God, what are you doing? What's going on? And I think about the first three centuries of the church and the explosive growth of Christianity. And how in 313 A.D., Constantine bowed the knee to Christ and Rome became Christian. It's phenomenal. Think about the Reformation or the Great Awakenings in the the 18th and 19th century. Or you think about what God is doing in various places in the world today. And it just blows your mind. I remember I was driving to church one morning in um, Brazzerville, Congo. I wasn't driving. They wouldn't let me drive. But that was just understandable. But I'm driving with the missionary. We're going to church. And I see these throngs of people, thousands and thousands of people. And I look at Gary and I said, Gary, isn't today Sunday? Like, why are all these people going to work? And I'm talking thousands of people. And he said, well, they're, they're going to church. I said, what? He said, all these people are going to church. They're going to worship Christ. I went to this church. And it was just, it wasn't like this. It wasn't well-appointed and comfortable. It was a massive concrete building with concrete sort of steps that people would sit on. And I sat down there with 5,000 people and we worshiped the Lord together. And just we were just one church in that city. And I see that and I've lived that and I've watched that and then I come back to Canada and I see what's not going on. 
and I scratch my head and sometimes I want to pull my hair. Well, I, I shouldn't, but I do. Because I'm saying, like, God, what are you doing? And that's exactly what the people were saying this day. That's why they were getting discouraged. But that's why I love verse 9. He kind of wraps this section up with verse 9. And, he, and, and God says this through his prophet. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. God had a plan to do something magnificent. God had a plan. And although they didn't see that plan with their eyes, what God is doing is giving them an opportunity to look with the eyes of faith. You see, their problem is that they were looking at what they saw. They believed what they saw rather than looking from God's perspective with the eyes of faith. And what was it that God was planning? Well, Malachi... Or if we were in, I, had a, I had an Italian friend once, and he always called this guy Malachi. Malachi the prophet, Malachi, was a contemporary of Haggai. And, and he, his prophecy came just shortly after the prophecy of, of Haggai. And again, Malachi is dealing with incredibly discouraged people. Same people, same issue, different time frame. The building is finally completed in 516 A.D., and they dedicate the temple. They have a a wonderful service of dedication to the Lord, and they sacrifice, and they do all those things that happen in Solomon's day on a less grand scale, obviously, but they dedicated the temple to the glory of Yahweh. And they were deeply disappointed. Why? They had expected the Spirit of the Lord to show up the way that the Spirit of the Lord had showed up when Solomon dedicated his temple 500 years before this. They were expecting the Shekinah glory of God to descend on the temple, and it didn't happen. And after all that work, and after all that investment, and after all that sacrifice, and after all of that that they had done to get this temple ready, it felt empty. And if you read what Malachi says, it's the most, one of the most beautiful prophecies in the Old Testament. He tells them, chapter 3, verse 1, he says, The Lord whom you seek, the Lord who you think has disappointed you, the Lord who hasn't shown up, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And we know with hindsight that that took 500 years. But the Lord did come to his temple. The Lord whom they sought came, humble, mounted on the colt of a donkey. He was the Messiah, the living God of Israel incarnate, the person of Jesus Christ. You see, it's an amazing thing. They didn't see it. Haggai says, the glory of this house will be far far more magnificent than the one that preceded it. Take it by faith. Malachi says, the Lord whom you are seeking, the one you think right now is standing back, not flooding this place with his Shekinah glory, is one day going to do something so much more magnificent, it will blow your mind if you could understand it. And that magnificence was that the Son of God, the incarnate Yahweh, 
God in the flesh, humbly rode into Jerusalem and began the last week of his journey, which led him to the cross, which culminated in the the veil of the temple being torn from top to bottom and sinners reconciled to a holy God. You see, God had a plan. God always has a plan. And if you want to stay encouraged in ministry, if you want to stay motivated in your service for God, don't look at what you see. Now, there's a lot of great stuff going on in this church, and it's exciting. Praise God for it. But look beyond what you see. Look beyond what you see. God always is at work. And we often don't see what he's doing. We see the obstacles. We see the struggles. We see the setbacks. We see the difficulties. God is always at work. And he uses difficulties and he uses tragedies and he uses setbacks to accomplish his glory and his purposes in ways that will blow our minds. I got a great example of this. There's a lovely man in our church family. He's going to be baptized next, next month. He was a secular man, a medical man. His wife was a believer, had, had come to faith. And she would come to church regularly, but he would never come. And then, tragically, difficultly, Anna broke her foot. And she said, Philip, would you please drive me to church? He didn't want to, but eventually he did. And because they lived sort of 15, 20 kilometers away, instead of driving her and then driving home and coming back and getting her and going home, he just stayed. And he would sit in our connection cafe. We we have a big television, not quite as big as that one, but there I was every Sunday morning preaching to him as he was drinking coffee and ignoring me, trying to. And then one of the pastors in our church, a dear, dear friend of mine, I think one of my best friends, got cancer. And Philip, although he wasn't his oncologist, he was associated with Bob and watched Bob die boldly and courageously with a tremendous sense of hope. And those two tragedies, a broken leg and the loss of my dear friend, were instrumental in bringing Philip to a place where he said, Jesus is Lord, and he's going to be baptized next, next month. You see, God was at work. God was at work. And I didn't see it. And Anna didn't see it, and Bob didn't see it, but God knew exactly what he was doing. So don't give up. Don't give up in doing good, doing well, serving the Lord, for you will reap in time if you don't grow weary, says the Apostle Paul. Look with the eyes of faith. That's why I love what the Apostle Paul says. He says, you know, we don't lose heart. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. We don't lose heart. We don't get discouraged. We don't become despondent. We don't throw in the towel. We don't quit. Why? Though the outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this momentary light affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond comparison. As we look, this is what he's saying here, as we look, as we continually look to the 
things that are, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient or temporal, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Folks, if you want to remain passionate and encouraged, look from God's perspective. Understand that God is at work. He is using what you are doing to accomplish great things for his glory. And although you don't see it now, and although perhaps you'll never see it in your lifetime, heaven will demonstrate conclusively and clearly that nothing that you have done for the honor and the glory of Jesus, using your gifts, investing your time, your money, your talents, nothing will have been wasted. So don't quit. Don't give up. Keep on keeping on. That's the first thing. The second thing is this. They got discouraged because they got comfortable with weakness. They got comfortable with weakness. Look at verse 4. Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Be strong. Be strong. Be strong. Be courageous. Fight the good fight. Don't quit. Be strong. God knew he needed to bolster the strength of his people. And so you say to yourself, why did they need strength? Why did they need this courage? Why did they need this bold, bold attitude, this, this fortitude? Well, again, if you go back to Ezra chapter 4, you'll read that the people of the land, this is, again, 17 years before Ezra chapter 4. This is 537 B.C. when the people had just come back and they're all excited and eager to build the temple. They come back and the people of the land, it says, discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build. So the culture of the day, the people who were living in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas intimidated the people when it came to them building. They didn't want this temple built. So they discouraged them, and they threatened them. They frightened them. And they went as far as to write a letter to King Artaxerxes of Persia. And they slandered the people of God. This is what they said in the letter. You can read this in Ezra chapter 4. The people told the king that Jerusalem was a wicked city and a rebellious city. Now, everybody knew that. Israel came under the hegemony of Babylon in 606-607 BC. It wasn't until 586 that Nebuchadnezzar had to actually come and destroy the city and raise the temple to the ground. He tried to govern that city, but they were ungovernable. They were a rebellious city. They rebelled, and they rebelled again, and they rebelled again until finally Nebuchadnezzar says, I'm done. We're going to flatten this place so they can't rebel anymore. So what they had said in this letter about the Jews was, in fact, historically accurate. And Artaxerxes knew this. In that letter, they also said that if you allow this temple to be built, the royal revenue will be impaired. They won't pay taxes. They're going to be a thorn in your side, Artaxerxes. And so Artaxerxes wrote back, and he told the Jews to stop all work on the temple, and they complied. They took the path of least resistance. The people of the culture didn't like it. The king didn't like it, so they stopped. 
So in reality, it wasn't just that they wanted to live in fancy paneled houses in luxury and ignore the temple. They were intimidated by their culture and they were intimidated by their government. And what they did is they took the path of least resistance. So now, fast forward 17 years. Not only is the work that God has commanded the people to do upsetting the population, things haven't changed 17 years later, but the attitude of the culture towards the the Jews building their temple is exactly the same. And there they are, waving the letter of a previous Persian emperor, saying, you can't do this, this is against the law, intimidating and creating fear. So why did God tell them to be strong? Because they had to be strong. They had to stand up to their culture, and they had to stand up to their government. They needed to be strong. They had a choice to make. They could do what they had done before and taken the path of least resistance, or they could have been strong. That was their choice. And hear this. Revival doesn't happen in churches that take the path of least resistance, ever. Revival does not happen in churches that conform to culture, ever. Revival never happens in weak need, pathetic churches. It happens when men and women are strong in the Lord and committed to obeying Him. That's where revival happens. It never happens until we learn to be strong. Revival and courage go hand in hand, always have and always will. It becomes, revival becomes a distinct, distinct possibility when we refuse to conform to the norms and the expectations and the mores of culture or, and secular government, and we choose to obey God. And what is the consequence of this? The consequence of this is that strong churches show the world by their distinctiveness a beautiful alternative to the pain and the damage that they are living in in their culture. God calls us to be a distinct people, a set-apart people, a different kind of people, a people that live under the authority of his word, a people that embrace his morality rather, regardless of what culture says a people who are willing to obey God rather than man. Too often, weak churches and weak Christians choose the path of least resistance. We go along to get along. We hide behind words like tolerance, love, and inclusivity. But Romans 1, when Paul wrote it, he wasn't kidding. He was talking to churches and he was talking to people. Do not be conformed to this world. Do not be conformed to their pattern of thinking, but be ye transformed. Be different. Set yourselves apart to the living God. Live as a society under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we do that, boldly and courageously with strength and conviction, we form a society, the society of Jesus, that is radically palpably, obviously different than the corruption and the brokenness and the despair that has just flooded our society. 
And we stand like a city set on a hill, welcoming people in their brokenness, in their confusion, in their lostness to the healing and the hope that is Jesus Christ. And that never happens unless we choose to be strong. It wouldn't happen in the 5th century B.C. It will not happen in the 21st century A.D. unless the people of God choose the path of strength as opposed to the path of weak resistance. Uh, as opposed to the path of least resistance. Now, I know that's not easy. It isn't easy. It's not easy to stand up in your high school and say, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's not easy. It's not easy to stand up in your work and say, there are just two sexes. It's not easy to say that any kind of sexual activity outside the covenant of marriage is sin and is wrong and it's destructive and it will hurt you. It's hard to say that. It's very hard to say that marriage is between a man and a woman and is a lifelong covenant that cannot be broken. It's hard to tell people that you don't get to choose your pronouns, that abortion is murder, truth is not relative, that you can't break the ninth commandment and lie and go along with some person's delusion about their gender identity. It's hard to do that. But this is what we are called to as Christians. We don't have an alternative. These people in the Old Testament were called to do something that was incredibly countercultural. It was offensive to the people of their day, but they did it. Why? God said to do it. The government said, you shouldn't. At least that was the last edict they had got. You don't get on, you know, you just don't get on Skype or, or FaceTime and have a conversation with the emperor. These things take months to go back and forth. The emperor, last emperor said, you can't do it. What are you doing? Well, we're obeying God. That's why when Nehemiah built the walls 80 years later, he's standing there, half the, half the guys have swords, half the guys have trowels, because they were strong men and women of faith who put obeying God above everything else. Everything else. A courageous church has the potential of great revival but it must be courageous enough to speak unambiguously the word of God to a lost and depraved and dying culture. We are the hope of Canada. We're the hope of the world. They're asleep in the arms of the evil one. Like never, never has that passage from Romans been more true than it is today. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And they're dying without a credible alternative. When the church becomes that credible alternative, that church has the potential to radically change its world because we are a city set on a hill. We are the salt and the light. We have the power to transform like nothing and no one does ever in this world because we get the spirit of the living God amongst us. The reason that so many churches and denominations are dying today is because they chose the path of least resistance. They chose to conform. They lack the, lack the strength, the conviction to be salt and light. Thirdly, thirdly, they forgot that God was with them. Now, I hope you have your Bibles here because I'd like to show you a little pattern that is here that really is something important that we see. 
In these verses, halfway through verse 4 through 6, I'll read it for you, you can see the pattern. And in this pattern, there are two commands right at the outside, at the beginning and at the end. And then inside of those two commands are two statements about the presence of God. Behold, I am with you. My spirit is abiding in, your play, in, in, in that place. And then right in the middle is the promise, the covenant-keeping promise of God. So the, in the middle, you get the covenant-keeping promise of, promise of God. You've got either side of that, two statements about God's presence with his people. On outside of that, you've got two commands, work and don't be afraid. And so let's read it together from verse Verse 4, where it says work. See that? Here's God speaking to the people. Work, first command. For I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. First promise of his presence. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. There's the, there's the bullseye. My spirit remains in your midst. There's the second promise of his presence. Second command, fear not. So you get two commands. Work hard. Don't quit working. Don't stop working. Work. And another command at the end of it, don't be afraid. Surrounding those two commands or inside of those two commands, you've got two promises that reference God's presence. I'm with you. My spirit is abiding in your midst. And then why does God say all that? Well, one simple reason. Because of the covenant that he made with the people of Israel when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. And the essence of that covenant, you can read it in, 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 in um, Exodus 29. The essence of that covenant was this. I will be your God and you will be my people. That is the promise that I have made to you. I will be your God and you will be my treasured possession. You will be my people. So you work from there out. I am your God and you are my people. Therefore, as a consequence of that loving covenant relationship, I'm with you. My spirit is abiding in your midst. Therefore, because I love you passionately and because I will never leave you nor forsake you because my spirit is in your midst and I will not leave you, I am in your presence. Therefore, because of that, work and don't be afraid. See that? Work and don't be afraid. Now, these two commands are commands that reflect the character, the ethos of a church that is about to be revived by the Spirit of God, or has the potential to be revived by the Spirit of God. So you say to me, well, Paul, how does, their, how does God commanding them to work encourage them? It's more like a taskmaster or a slave master looking down at a slave and says, get busy, lazy slave. I don't think it was interpreted that way. I think the answer is simple. Since we are his treasured possession, since we are in covenant relationship with us, and since he is always with us, he will never forsake us, he invites us into what he is doing. He's inviting the people of God to join him in his work. God delights, he always has delighted to do extraordinary things through ordinary people. And that's exactly what's happening right here. 
He's using people who are inclined to be discouraged, inclined to be intimidated, inclined to be afraid, inclined to be over-deferential to the political authorities. And he's saying, look, I am with you. I love you. So keep on going. I am doing something great here, and I have given you the privilege of being part of it. You see, God has always done that. Yesterday I was thinking about this, and I, I, I turned to John 6, the story of, it's, it's in all the Gospels, the story of the feeding of the 5,000. But John tells it differently. He said there was a little boy who had five loaves and two fishes, and Jesus includes him in the story. Did Jesus need that little boy with five loaves and two fishes in order to accomplish the things that he was going to do? He was going to feed about 10,000 people that day. It was going to be that the, the word of life, the logos, was going to speak reality into existence. He was going to speak substance into existence. Just like the way the day he created the world, he spoke and it was. He was going to speak and create bread. Did he need that little guy really seriously? But there he was in this story. Comes and he gives Jesus his two, five loaves, two fish, and Jesus takes that meager pittance and the God of all the universe speaks life creates ex nihilo out of nothing and feeds 10,000 people and they have 12 baskets left over God loves to do that why? because you are his treasured possession Pope Markham and he is with you he will never forsake you he will never abandon you as a congregation, as a family, as an individual. He's for you, he is with you, and he invites you into his work. So work. Don't be afraid. Now there's a crazy, nonsensical command. Like the the, the command to work might have been a little incongruous and sort of hard to understand, but don't be afraid? What do you mean don't be afraid? I'm afraid. There's a very real threat right here. How can you not be afraid when you are afraid? Isn't, isn't fear just kind of an involuntary reaction? And some big guy comes and says, I think I'm going to beat you up today. You look like a Christian. What do you do? Hey, I'm afraid. How do I not be afraid? Well, you remember this thing. And it, and it banishes fear the way the sun banishes darkness when it rises in the morning. You are loved by God. You've got to know that. You are passionately, deeply, eternally, unconditionally loved by God. For goodness sakes, he chose you before the foundation of the world. You, me, out of this mass of billions of people who have lived and whoever would live, he chose you. And he set his love upon you. And he predestined you to make you his child through the finished work of the cross. He's head over heels in love with you. And he's with you. His spirit is in you. He surrounds you. He never leaves you. He never forsakes you. Even the difficult, challenging painful things that you encounter are always filtered through his gracious, loving hand, purposefully, redemptively to bring about his purposes.
And when we know that, not just as a theological concept, as a, as a sort of biblical truth, but we know that in our hearts, fear, fear evaporates. When the Spirit of God witnesses to our spirit, Romans 8, 16, that we are children of God, blood-bought, treasured children of God, fear can't exist in that heart. When we forget the presence of God, two things happen in the church and in our lives. We stop working and we start worrying. We stop working for God and we start worrying about life. So never forget, you're loved. You are loved. We say that at the end of our service since we've become a GCC church now. You are loved. But it's not just a word. It's not just a phrase. It's not just a thing that you say at the end of, the, end of a service. You are a blood-bought, treasured child of the living God. You're loved. He is with you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. So work, brothers and sisters. Serve the king. Identify your gifts. Get busy in the cause of Christ. Share the gospel. Talk to people about who Jesus is. Because God uses that meager effort to quicken the dead, to comfort the grieving. Teach that Sunday school class because God can pour that truth that could easily just fall on the ground. He can pour that into little hearts and transform them for his glory forever. Don't stop. And folks, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Jesus has conquered it all. He's conquered death. What is there to be afraid of? Oh my goodness. I'm going to break my promise if I don't get going here. Lastly, very quickly, they worried about money. They worried about money. The people didn't know where the money's coming from. How are we going to pay for all this? We spent all the money on our paneled houses. What are we going to do now? This is not good. Again, if you go back to Ezra, go back to Ezra, you find out what's going on. The people have written a letter, this time to Darius, who is now the emperor of the Persian Empire. They said, they said to the emperor, same stuff as the previous letter, essentially. These Jews are a rebellious bunch. They're, gonna, they're not going to pay taxes. It's going to be really bad for the empire. What does the emperor do? The letter comes back. They're still building in defiance of the culture and the government. They're still building. They're still serving God because God is with them. The letter comes back from Darius. Let them keep on building. And you know what? Let the money for the building come out of the royal treasury. I'll pay for it. No big deal. Persians get a lot of money. We'll rebuild the temple. And he did. And he paid for it. God shook the nations the way he shook an olive tree. And the resources that they needed flooded in and the work was completed and the temple was dedicated in 516 AD. Interestingly, exactly 70 years after it was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, fulfilling the prophecy of Jeremiah 25, 11, that Israel would be in exile for 70 years, one year for every sabbatical year that they had ignored. So should this surprise us? God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, the wealth in every mine. He is the creator. He is God. The silver is his. The, the gold is his. Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China, used to say, depend on it. Depend on it. 
depend on it. God's work done in God's way will never lack God's provision. So this prophecy was continued to be fulfilled. 500 years later, a guy named Herod the Great comes along, and Herod the Great is a builder. If you go to Israel, we take trips to Israel and take people with us. If you go to Israel, you see all kinds of stuff that Herod the Great built. That's what he was known for. He was a great builder. What did he build? He built a temple. He took this little temple that paled in significance to what previously had been built, and he built, he, he renovated, he shaped, and he made a magnificent temple that was one of the great wonders of the world back then. And as I said earlier on, as Malachi prophesied, the Lord suddenly came to his temple that last week of his earthly journey. And he sacrificed himself. And the glory of that temple was far superior to anything that the world has ever seen. But you know what? We are now the temple of the living God, aren't we? We are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, people for God's own possession, called out of darkness into his marvelous light that we might show forth the excellencies of him who called us. That's why we exist. God's heart is to revive churches, but he can't revive us. He can't revive us. He won't revive us if we look at what we see. If we think that reality is all that there is, if that's the reality, then we just can't. Look beyond what you see. God is always at work. Be strong. Don't choose the path of least resistance. Stand up. Be counted for Christ. Stand four square on the word of God. Preach the truth. Hold fast to the morality that God has given to us and share the gospel uncompromisingly. Never forget that God loves you. He is with you. And so you can work and you do not need to be afraid. And everything that this church needs... God will supply according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. One of the things I always told our elders over the years is we will never allow the budget to determine our ministry, but we will always make sure that the ministry determines budget. Figure out what God wants you to do and step out in faith, and he will provide your needs, as I know he has in the past and will continue to, because he is a faithful God. Let me pray with you, and we will be dismissed after we sing a hymn. Father God, I thank you that you want us to be encouraged. Satan wants us to be discouraged and despondent. I pray, Father, that you would fill our hearts this morning with joy, knowing these truths are in fact true of me. They're true of us. And we can claim and hang on to them tightly and find great joy in going out into our world to serve the King of Kings, trusting that in your time and in your sovereignty and for your glory, you will revive us in this church. We look forward to that day in Jesus' name. Amen.